I'm David Patterson. I am a professor of history and literature at the University of Texas at Dallas. And uh, I took up my engagement with Tolstoy and other Russian authors many years ago. Um, I was a philosophy major exploring, you know, the big questions, God and humanity, good and evil, meaning and meaninglessness. And I found that the Russian authors really, at least for me, address these questions much, much more profoundly than the philosophers. Not to take anything from the philosophers. I loved Kierkegaard at the time, too. So uh, I turned to Tolstoy, and uh, I ended up you know, studying Tolstoy in a PhD dissertation. I read everything Tolstoy wrote, um, and I translated uh, his confession. Now, what's, what struck me about the confession, written in 1879, you know, after he had written War and Peace, Anna Karenina, He's, all, he's world famous. Wildly successful. One of the wealthiest men in Russia. Uh, beautiful family. He has everything. And, and he's accomplished everything. And yet, he has this collision with death and despair and, and, the, and, the, and the idea that he has not accomplished anything of note. And uh, nor, is, nor is any is it possible for anyone to accomplish anything that matters? Uh, and his, his, his writing and his thinking take a turn from that, from 1879 on. He was born in 1828, uh, died in 1910. So he's like uh, 50, 51. Um, but this, it had haunted him for a long time, and you can see it in his earlier works even. Uh, one of the characters in Anna Karenina, Levin, is modeled after Tolstoy himself, engaging in this search for meaning. And the character works something out, but the character is not the author. The character is modeled after the author. <laughs> but the character uh, you know, lives in a fictitious world, right? The world that Tolstoy has created. Tolstoy has to live a flesh and blood life. Okay, so I stumbled. I, I think I saw the confession referenced a couple times in the past couple of years and finally decided I needed to read it. So I wasn't, I, I'm never, I, my expectations were low. I liked Tolstoy and I like also liked the Russian authors, but I haven't delved deeply into them. <clears throat> it was like a blast of not cold, chilling air, but like fresh air that someone could treat so concisely <clears throat> the sudden awareness of this pointlessness. Like this life is pointlessness without a lot of fluff. And then also to immediately start categorizing people. Like I see these elites acting this way and there's four different kinds. And there's three different responses to this without the system becoming overwhelming. It always stayed very personal, very short and concise. Um, what was your first encounter with the confession? How did it, how did it hit you? Well, uh, I, I first read it as an undergraduate. Uh, then I 
studied it very carefully in, in graduate school, and you know, it was it was one of the focal points of my doctoral dissertation. Um, and then I read it years later again. I recently read it again for our discussion, and uh, it's it it's a book that speaks to us at various stages in our life. I suggest you read it again in 10 years or so. <laughs> it'll be, it'll, it'll read differently. Um, but when I would first draw me into it was uh, how to deal with death uh, and suicide. You know, Albert Camus, famous French philosopher, opens his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, by saying there is only one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Everything else is fluff, as you say. So, uh, and Tolstoy comes to realize that. And he, it is a confession. He's confessing a certain weakness, that among those, the four groups, there are the strong and the, the one who have the will, to, to carry out what is logically required, namely to kill themselves. Uh, he places himself in the, in the least favorable group, <laughs> those yes. who, are, who are too weak, who know the problem, but are too weak and feeble to do anything about it. But there's, there's an and yet in there, and yet. He said there was still, I still sensed in my soul, something wasn't right here. Uh, and the soul has its, has its own insight. Um, the soul that comes from God has, it retains a trace of God and, and knows that we are choosing life is what matters. You know, we're commanded, I put before you this day, life and death, good and evil. Choose life of these four choices. Actually, there are six choices, but curse and blessing and curse. Choose life. What does it mean? Tolstoy acts on this commandment. It doesn't mean choose to stay alive at all costs. It means choose to embrace the life of, of, of the other person. Uh, it's in the relationship that the soul comes to life. It's in the between space of a relationship that the soul draws its breath and affirms and, and realizes what is holy. So uh, Tolstoy, so the, the problem is the relationship between the finite and the infinite. Okay, I did want to ask about that because he puts that <clears throat> at the center. It is at the center, uh, and if you think if you're thinking with reason alone, and just incidentally, he doesn't discard reason altogether. Right. <laughs> he criticizes the intellectual elites constantly, but doesn't he? Clearly, is reason should lead me here. In fact, I think he, when you say he has this, he, he thinks I should kill myself. He, what's going on here? He thinks my reason must be wrong. So I'm going to continue to use my reason, but he starts wrestling with like mystical, like clearly my reason isn't getting me all the way there. So he doesn't throw it away, but he thinks there's some irrational thinking in there that he should be doing or something he can apprehend that his reason won't get him there. 
Yes. Well, without reason, he can't come to the limits of reason. I got gotcha. you. Uh, reason, it turns out, is not the high court of truth, but reason leads him to the point where thought leaves off, as it were. Kierkegaard says faith begins where thought leaves off, or with, with our usual categories of thought that say the finite has to equal the finite, the infinite equals the infinite. One can't contain the other, right? But faith is what reveals to us, for Tolstoy, the, the infinite dearness of the other human being. Uh, that, that, so that our concern for death is a concern not for my death, but for death, the death of the other human being. There's, there's a, an episode in Anna Karenina when Levin, one of the characters, his brother is dying of consumption and he's terrified to be around his dying brother. He's terrified of death. And he notices that his wife, completely uneducated and their maid, a peasant, you know, illiterate, right. are not afraid of him. They know they take care of him. They know exactly what to do. And he says, they know more than all, the, all of my philosophy because they're not terrified by death. They're concerned with the death of the brother, with the dying brother, because they see that in that concern uh, lies their, their relation to what is holy, their relation to the Holy One. For Tolstoy, there is no relation to God without relation to the other human being. Okay, he does, and I remember there's a there's a turn in the confession where again he realizes clearly my reasoning must be wrong because I I know this is meaningless and yet I don't kill myself and that he especially looks at the again the peasants, the farm workers, yeah. the people who have far worse lives than him, and he's like, if this life is meaningless, they should be killing themselves in droves. Why are they alive? So what you're saying is, so th and he asks that question, and I don't. He doesn't, I feel like he doesn't absolutely answer it, but maybe you do. I feel like he's struggling in the confession, but maybe you think he does come to an answer. No, he, um, I think the beauty of the confession is that it doesn't give us a, a, a fixed formula or a ready answer. It leads us to, to continue in the, in the seeking. Uh, God lies in the question. You know, the Hebrew word for question is she'elah. In the middle of the word is e-l-l, -L, which is God. So the rabbis say God is in the question, not in the answer. Uh, it's the question that keeps us moving within, in the relationship. The relationship requires movement. Um, and the, 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 dream, it, the, the dream is captures the whole confession at the end. That is, right. uh, it, it ends, sort of ends abruptly. And then that thing, the dream happens, it's sort of tacked on at the end. It feels like, again, from what I read from your introduction and the explanations, he had a vision that he would write a long book giving his entire yeah. explanation of this philosophy and then decides at the end of the confession, he's just going to drop this dream in at the end and it is profoundly moving. So for you, maybe you could just describe it. and. Well, yeah, the dream is 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 profoundly moving because it, it articulates the ineffable. 
like dreams do. Uh, dreams, dreams are the language of the soul. His soul is speaking to him, not his reason, but his soul. Uh, and he's, he's held up in the dream, as you know, he's, he's lying on a cord bed. The cords start breaking away. Yeah. Until uh, there's just one cord left that he's balancing on. He gazes down into an abyss of darkness. Um, but he manages to look up. He looks up and he sees another infinity above, a dimension of height. The dimension of height is the dimension of holiness uh, that faith opens up. And, it, and it's, that's what keeps him, it's the vision of what is on high that keeps him from plunging into the depths below. And of course the cords are tied to two pillars that somehow are, stand, are very firm, right? Right. Pillars of truth, pillars of faith, however you un understand it. Uh, but it's that, it's, it's having his eyes on the vision of what is most high. It's what s elevates him, suspends him over the deep when he should be plunging t into the, to his death. So the, the, the way of reason fixes his, his gaze on below on the firm ground. The way of faith turns his gaze heavenward. There's a story about Thales, the, the Greek philosopher, supposedly the first philosopher in the Western tradition. Thales. Plato tells a story about him. According to the story, Thales was walking along one night, gazing up at the heavens when he fell into a pit. He crawls out of the pit and resolves never again to take a step without being certain of the firm ground under his feet. Okay. Hence the birth of Western speculative philosophy. <laughs> but of course he loses his view of the heavens. And as Tolstoy realized, there is no firm ground. We, we long for security. We long for insurance and assurance. You know, are you insured? as if that protects you from anything, right? <laughs> uh, we, want, we want to be safe, secure, assured. We want our redemption assured. Are you saved? You know, are you going to heaven? Uh, but Tolstoy realized, part of what he realized about the bankruptcy of reason is it, can't, it does not bring redemption or salvation. <laughs> Because it can't bring meaning. Okay, now when people think of faith, they usually think of religion, and then oftentimes for them, organized religion. And in this very tight, concise piece, Confession, he goes back to, well, I was raised with this religion, and he has this very poignant moment where he talks about, thinks about his brother was mocked, and he kind of just let it go. They just kind of let the religion go. It wasn't going to work for them. So he goes back. So he's, he's trying to figure out where is his faith. He goes back to the church and thinks there must be something to these rituals. But in, a, in just, again, a couple dozen pages, he gets rediscovering his religion, throws himself into it, and then says, not quite for me. So from your perspective, right. what what is the part of that organized religion that he took some sustenance from? And he saw the peasants. They're completely, they're completely uh, awash in this. This must work. It doesn't work for him. Why do you think it doesn't work for him? 
it doesn't work for him because of it's dogmatic. He would he would later write critiques of dogmatic theology. It's 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 a religion of fixed formulas and ready answers. Yeah. That that, that doesn't tolerate questioning. Okay. Um it's it's you know my way or the highway. And it doesn't it doesn't the more dogma you have, the more deaf you are to the outcry of the other human being. Uh, he's what he sees in the peasants, who most of whom are illiterate. You you know, <laughs> they don't. All they know is what the priest tells them, yeah. or what they see in the artwork in the churches. Right? Uh, they're not thinkers. They're not theologians, but they, it gives them some some sense of what matters in life. So here, faith, I mean, you're right. Faith is usually thought of in terms of dogma or believing in something. Correct. Faith is not about believing. Faith is about living. Faith is about an embrace of the other human being. Faith is about saying to the other person, here I am for you, when that person cries out to us. You know, when, the, when God calls the prophets and the patriarchs in the Bible, they don't answer, huh, or what. <laughs> they say, hineni, here I am for you. Right. Uh, ready to serve. And, and he, the Hebrew, hineni, here I am, is a movement toward the one who calls. It's not, I'm in this spot. No, it's, I'm moving from this spot to you. Faith is a movement. We speak of the movement of faith. Uh, so, by the, Tolstoy's wrestling, he's like Jacob wrestling with the angel, the angel of death, right? Uh, he is sent forth at, by the end. He, he undertakes a movement of faith. So he doesn't, the confession isn't over when it ends. <laughs> right. uh, and Tolstoy will go on to write many, many other important works along these lines. I, I mentioned Father Sergius to you. And I read that. Great. <laughs> okay. So you remember the Father Sergius, who was known as a you know righteous man, religious man, holy man, he realizes it's a, it's all a sham. But what does religious mean? He, and he had this his old friends, his woman who's who was known for helping people. Who's not about, she couldn't tell you the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, she's not about the doctrine. Right. And he sees in her act of loving kindness, true righteousness, true meaning. The only way I can take on meaning is if I become a symbol and a signifier of the dearness and the holiness of the other person. I can't be my own ground of meaning any more than I, than I can pick myself up by my own hair. You know what's left of it. It's it, it's it's in a certain forgetfulness of myself that my soul finds its salvation. The self is the opposite of the soul in this sense. That's what Tolstoy comes to realize. Uh, despair. The, he falls into a horrible state of despair, right? 
And very poignantly, one of my favorite things inside Confession, when he's talking about this multi-years despair he fell into, was how he had to yeah. guard himself. I can't go hunting with my friends. I can't have rope in the house because I'm afraid that I will end my life. Yeah. Suicide's the temptation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, if you, if, the most radical rejection of God is suicide and murder. You know, we, it's, yeah, but suicide and murder are connected, of course. But suicide is, as Camus says, is the problem. Um, But despair, with with Tolstoy, he discovered, you know, despair is a fragmentation of the soul. Uh, It's, it's a a longing to, to be some, someone or something other than who you are and not knowing, not knowing who you are. Uh, It feeds on itself. And it becomes most dangerous when it when it's the only thing left that you have to understand who you are. I'm the one in despair. That's who I am. Right. But there's no. This is where the fixation on the self leads. Uh, it's 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 what Kier, and I mentioned Kierkegaard again. He calls it life in the dative case. In other words. Life governed by the question of what's in it for me and what's going to happen to me. Yeah, it's it's me, 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 me. Uh, and and th- this is very pertinent in our own world today. I mean, look at all we have a culture that locks itself into the 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 cave of an illusory self. Everything's about me. And social media is especially pernicious in this regard, in my view. I know I sound terribly old <laughs> and old-fashioned. You're not alone, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, Tolstoy's confession is has everything to do with what we confront now. It's for anyone who has a soul, I think. Um. Do you think he is particularly haunted? So one thing I overthink, I'm a ruminator, I'm an overthinker, and so maybe Tolstoy's confession jumped out at me. He says a number of times in describing his life as he reevaluated it, as a thinker, he's asked to teach people things, so people want him to write things. And he says poignantly a few times, we are constant. I'm constantly asked to teach something, but I don't know what I'm teaching. So he goes up there and teaches and says, I lack some profound level of understanding about this thing that I go and teach. And they throw the money at me and they throw all the adulation at me. I sound good to them. And so they pay me for this, but I don't know what I'm teaching. I, I went and read that book. Um, Coat, uh, Maureen Coat, I think was her name. And she collected, um, last letters from his last life. And I thought was particularly moved at a couple of them right in the last few months. He says he's these people who come and ask him for advice and they're asking for career advice and sometimes spiritual advice. He just, on one day he says, I'm so exhausted by these people. I can't stand them. And he's still on his journey because the next day or two days later, his next diary entry is like, I was, that was the wrong response and I really need to be more open to this and it's boring to me, but these people need help. So he's still struggling with his, his eye needs and he mm-hmm. still struggles to mm-hmm. the end of his days. How am I going to help people? He's struggling. Is there something poignant about Tolstoy as a thinker that maybe thinkers don't get to, they don't get to sit in the dogma. They don't get to get to distracted by their normal life. They just, does Tolstoy think too much and that causes some of his pain? Well, Yes. Yes, um, he gets 
trapped in his thinking. I mean, he, 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 he thinks himself into a position that's paralyzing. Yeah. Uh, he, he's like, as again, Kierkegaard once said, I'm like a man with a wooden leg. I can't take a step without reflection. <laughs> so it's paralyzing. And the, the only the antidote to the paralysis is not more, more thinking. <laughs> it's to leave off with thinking and, and, and to start listening, uh, listening to the call of the other person or the touch, the need, the seeking of the other person. You know, Tolstoy mentions in the confession, uh, saying, I was like a man who has a, uh, who has a minor dis- indisposition. He, takes, he thinks it's not, not serious or anything. Turns out to be the most serious thing there is, it turns out to be death. And of course, the death of Ivan Illich is precisely about that. Uh, the man who, who did everything right, everything his college advisors told him to do, right. went to the right law school, became a judge, married the right girl, lived in the right neighborhood, uh, you know, hung out with the cool crowd in his youth. Uh, and He's, he injures himself while adjusting a curtain rod in his, his new fashionable home, and this injury leads to his death. And he goes through the same process. What is life? What does it mean? How can I be dying like this? What did I do wrong? Maybe I haven't lived as I should have. And he, and he says, no, that can't be it. I did everything right. And he keeps, like Tolstoy goes back, maybe there is something else. And finally, as he's on his deathbed, he realizes, yes, that was not the way. So, you know, it turns out that the death of Ivan Illich is not his demise. It's the counterfeit that he had mistaken for life. That's his death. And he said, what, what is it? And the light, the light of revelation, it's revealed to him. He doesn't deduce it. There's a light that is revealed to him when he feels his son take his hand and kiss his hand. That's where the truth is, in the touch of a child, in, in the, um, the embrace of the other human being, not in more thinking. Uh, and you have to become vulnerable to embrace someone. You have to open your arms. Reason is like armor. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, and, you know, and Dostoevsky once said, you know, I know of no thought higher than this idea of an embrace. He says, what will you positivists give me in return for that? Uh, so that's it. It's, it's a movement toward the, the other person. The one, his, his, Ivan Ilyich's son is weeping. He's in, you know, and Ivan wants to comfort him. Faith is an attitude of listening. The Hebrew word for meaning is mashmaut, and the root of the word is shma, which means to hear. To have a sense of meaning is to have a sense of hearing, hearing your, your, your name called. Uh, it's to have a sense of calling, okay? But a, a sense of calling can only come from beyond me, maybe also within, 
But as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, blessed is he who knows that within and above are synonyms. Okay. So uh, Tolstoy leaves off with the confession with a profound sense of calling. Uh, now, he, now he has something to teach that can't be articulated. Which I don't know, is that a curse or a blessing for a talented writer to know you? there is a truth you cannot articulate? Well, that's, yes. <laughs> the, the truth is precisely what eludes utterance. That's why we write poetry, right? When, when, when words are not enough, we turn to the poetic word. Tolstoy is, is a brilliant artist, right? A brilliant writer very sensitive to the language. Tolstoy, who was, as you know, was highly educated, intelligent, sophisticated, but he, for the most part, certainly from with the confession and afterward, he writes in a very simple style. Yeah. His Russian is much easier than Dostoevsky's. <laughs> I can tell you. So, he, he wants to, he's accessible on many levels, which is part of his brilliance. Um, but he can't, he can't give us the answer. <laughs> he can only tell us the tale. Okay, that's probably the shifting disappointment. So again, we get fed stories. As you talked about dogma, dogma is there's a difficult problem. There is an answer. Don't worry, we've got an answer. And so earlier, you read stories and they kind of give you the answers. They tell you what you should think about the characters. And that's the confession is so, again, it's so tight at the beginning. He is absolutely seeking truth. And then for him to throw off at the end, uh, kind of a, a, a fabulous metaphorical dream where he doesn't tell you what to think of. Clearly he wants you to pull something from the dream, but he's not telling you anymore. He's just, let me tell you he's, about this dream. He doesn't tell you what to pull from the dream. Right. <laughs> he wants you to do it. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, the, the dogma would have the last word. Faith, as Tolstoy understands it, summons another word and another word and another word. Each time we respond, we become more profoundly responsible. Each time we help someone else, we're summoned to help more and more and more. That's where the infinite opens up in our infinite responsibility for two and four, one who is infinitely precious. Um, you know, I have, those of us who have children. Yeah. I have two children, two daughters. Each one I held in my hands when she was like five seconds old, looking into those eyes that take their first look at this world. And suddenly I'm a sage. I know the meaning of life. <laughs> I know what must be. I know what matters. I know what to fear, what to fear for. Um, and I realize, as sometimes I put it, that the infinite comes in small packages. And it doesn't lie in anything that meets the eye. It's, it, it, you know, as... Antoine de Saint-Exupéry once said, the author of The Little Prince, you know, only the heart can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Uh, 
faith is about enabling your heart to, to see with 2020 vision. Reason is, is vision oriented. It's what meets the eye, what is evident to the eye. Um, and this, I mean, you see this in, in, you know, the discourse of seeing and hearing sometimes hearing, but in any case, um, Tolstoy sets, sets, as he, as Tolstoy himself sets out down a path, he sets his reader on a path and, and you have to, in a way you have to set out like Abraham without knowing exactly where you're going. <laughs> I, and I certainly, again, you recommended Father Sergius, and that is exactly, I don't think that's, I don't think it's an anticipated storyline. It doesn't end where you thought it was going to end, unless maybe you'd read a lot of later Tolstoy already. <laughs> <laughs> so it was surprising and so short. Again, it reminded me of the dream. Yeah. A total abandonment. Someone, a, a religious icon, just yeah. sort of shuff, sloughing it all off. And wandering back into the world again, uh, yeah, it was yeah. Well, Tolstoy was a, a cultural, intellectual, artistic icon, right? Himself, and so the answer is not to become a religious icon. <laughs> the problem is in the icon, so to say, uh, and it's it's whatever whatever keeps you from extending a helping hand suffocates your soul. That's where meaninglessness is. Uh, meaning is in the relationship. Meaning lies in hearing the voice of an imperiled God in the outcry of the other human being. You know, Nikos Kazantzakis once said, sometimes I think God may not be so almighty after all, Sometimes I think he's as helpless as an infant. And if we don't nurture him and protect him and take care of him, he will die. Okay, then I do understand a bit in the confession where I felt like my takeaway was, wait a second, is all this, this is just love and helping, helping and love? That's the whole thing. This great intellectual has sort of stumbled into, I'm like, really, that's it? Like Jesus is love and love is God and God is love. But I guess... It, it seems your when your reason approaches it again. It seems small because all these great cathedrals of confusing, complicated, organized religion and dogma. And I liked also the fact that Tolstoy even mentions he delved into other religions, and then he's got this nice little paragraph in there where he complains, like, "I got into the Orthodox thing, but they're all wedded to this thing. They want to fight with the other Christians. Like, yeah. what are we doing arguing about this stuff?" Well, if it leads to fighting, it can't be the truth, right? <laughs> And Tolstoy, as you said, he's a serious guy. He knew like 15 languages, including Hebrew and, and biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek. He studied with rabbis so he could learn, read the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Uh, he studied the Eastern religions, right? He's, so he's philosophy, everything. He, he searched everywhere. Right. Um, but it's, it's in... It's in a way of life that he finds something in the pe in the peasants. Now it's not as he doesn't idolize the peasants. It's not as if he didn't know anything about them. Right. He lived with them. <laughs> you 
you know, it wasn't some romantic vision. He knew all their flaws and everything. Um, but it's how they lived and how they cared for one another and how they treated the dying. They weren't afraid of death. They understood death to be a moment of testimony in life. You know, it's part of, it's part of, of what we are summoned to engage. Um, and it's, it is, it, it's, 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 a, it's about bringing God into this kingdom. I think Tolstoy, he wrote a book, a work called The Kingdom of God. One, he wrote many short religious works. And Tolstoy understands life uh, not to be about getting into God's kingdom, but getting God into this kingdom. Uh, it through, as I said, through, through, a, through a, a human touch, a kind word, through the embrace, through a, a simple act of, of helping someone. And it's, it's, the, it's all around us all the time. The, the, the world is, team, is teeming with wonder. There's nothing more mystical than the mundane. And as I said, it's as simple as, as an, an everyday act is holding an infant in your hands opens up what there is, what matters, what matters. In spite of, sometimes in spite of, but <laughs> maybe in addition to all of our studying. I, you know. I, I do not disagree with anything you're saying, but then to play the difficult devil's advocate, clearly these utopian ideals of other realms we will get to because we get so dissatisfied and so frustrated with our world here. But I agree, Tolstoy sort of getting down in the dirt, and I agree with you that the wonderful is in the mundane, but it is difficult because we experience a world that is imperfect. That's, in, again, the finite meeting uh -huh. infinite, very difficult. So then we dream of something else. There could be another kind of system, another kind of people, another world somewhere else, another realm somewhere else yeah. that will be better yeah. than this one. No, believe me, I understand that perfectly. I teach and write about the Holocaust. Okay. Okay. And I have students, it, it, the Holocaust is traumatizing to anyone who studies it. <laughs> I've had students in my office many times in tears. Um, and I have to explain to them that they'll talk about engaging suffering and what looks like meaningless suffering. Yeah. And the absence of God, where is God? I once had an eight-year-old child who, who, who had grandparents who were survivors ask me, where was God? He's a philosopher, right? And I try to explain to my students, look, the, pur the, pu the purpose of engaging this suffering is not to get lost in that abyss below us in, of despair, which is which yawns like a, like, like something monstrous. It's easy to get lost in that. No, but we have to turn our gaze upward to, 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 to behold what matters. In other words, we engage this human suffering in order to deepen our understanding of how infinitely precious each human life is and how fragile it is, 
And how much is at stake in my every movement? Okay. That is reason for a measure of joy and gratitude. That it matters. That there is meaning. That there is something holy at stake. Even in, in, in my every movement unto my death. Even unto my death. Um, without them, it's one of the most essential things in gratitude, in life, is gratitude, being thankful. And I think Tolstoy came to understand this too. Um, and then where there's gratitude, there's a certain joy. But gratitude is always relational, it's I thank you. Right. I don't know. What does it mean to thank myself? You know, so the, the real horror is meaninglessness, as Tolstoy understood very well. It's not death. It's meaningless death. It's not suffering. It's meaningless suffering. That's the problem. Okay. Um, the fact that, that there is so much suffering implicates me. I'm the one responsible, as, as Dostoevsky says. Each of us is responsible for all, and I more than the others. If, if, if the kingdom hasn't come yet, I have a measure of responsibility for that. I have to do more. I have to be more, be, more, be present more. Um, and Tolstoy, um, Tolstoy as he, you know, in his later years, uh, had quite a following. I get that impression again. This the people that seem like they're visiting him in his last year, year and a half. Clearly, no, he was like a prophet to them, and and to him it was. I mean, he he felt responsibility to be present, to be there for them, to to listen to them, and respond to them as best he could. But he he, he didn't have the answer for them. He had a direction, perhaps. Yeah. A path. But God God is, is not just at the end of the road. God is the road. Right, right before us. Uh, you know, in, in the closing scenes of uh, Field of Dreams, the Kevin Costner film about he builds a baseball field and everybody thinks he's nuts. His father, his dead father, comes back to him, baseball player, and his father asks him, is this heaven? And Ray, the character, says, no, this is Iowa. His father says, man, I could have sworn this was heaven. And then Ray looks up at his porch. He sees his wife and child on the porch swing. He says, maybe this is heaven. He sees the infinite in the finite. Seeing the heaven within our midst seeing what there is to rejoice in and what must what and realizing what must be done uh, what what would it what would it be if we had nothing to do this was you led me i did want to ask i thought it was sort of a puerile question to ask but a major issue many people have even very smart people why would god create a universe in which there was work to be done and there was suffering to be experienced why you could have just made a perfectly functioning universe like the Garden of Eden we hear about at the beginning of the Jewish Bible. We could have just had a Garden of Eden. We didn't have to break it. It could have just been perfect all the time. 
How do you respond to people who say that it could have been perfect? Clearly God messed up or it's not a holy good God or something like that. Well, perfection is meaningless. And the soul can't live without meaning any more than the body can live without bread. Meaning comes to bear, becomes an issue, and it's absence when it seems lost. Uh, it's, it's meaning is precisely what is sought, not what is fixed and established. So the, the, the perfect world is where everything is decided, everything is fixed, everything is established. Right. And everything is meaningless. <laughs> Uh, the, that's the soul can't live in a perfect world. The soul doesn't live seeking perfection, but seeking holiness, seeking meaning, seeking what there is to love. Okay, uh, not what there is to figure out. <laughs> right. Um, but imagine what that would be the true horror. That there's nothing to seek. You know, with the, some of the famous last words in literature are the dying words of Kurtz in The Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's book, <clears throat> later made into a film, of the same scenario, Apocalypse Now, right? Yeah. Kurtz, uh, is, in, the, in the novel and the film, is a renegade, goes off, builds his kingdom of his own, he becomes a god himself in the midst of a, a primitive realm, and he dies repeating the words, the horror, the horror. And as I explained to my students, the horror is not that there's so much evil. The horror is that there is no evil. And there is no good. It's simply what is. It's meaningless. That's the horror. And of course, Conrad is, is, he wrote his novel in 1899. As you know, we, we've, we've just about finished thinking God out of the picture and modernity, and we're left only with the horror. I think that's Tolstoy collides with the horror, uh, which is one way to think of it is it's the absence of God. Um, one of the strengths of Tolstoy's so called religious writings yeah. is that they're. They're generally uh, very careful about God talk. <laughs> there's not a whole bunch in the, in the confession. There's not a lot. There, there is some God talk, but not, not as much as you might expect. No, there's literally only two or three sentences where he yeah. spells out very quickly that he believes in the Trinity. He believes in the God bump, bump, bump. And then he moves on. So he's not into the dogma or locking it down. He's like, and then he moves yeah. on to talk about something else. Yeah. But I mean, you, I think he, he understood that God comes to bear more powerfully when he's not talked about so directly. Yeah. So directly. This is where the art comes in. The, the indirect communication, the, in, the giving, giving utterance to the ineffable. God's name can't be pronounced. Right, the four-letter name, according to the right. Jewish tradition, can't be pronounced. It's beyond not not it's, that it's forbidden to say it, but it's it's unpronounceable because God can't be God is the nameless one, or sometimes referred to as Hashem, the name. Right. 
Um, so God is most profoundly engaged, I would say, in the human, not in the dogma, not in not even in maybe perhaps not even in scriptures. Um, you know, I'm reminded of the story of how Mother Teresa set out on her mission as Mother Teresa. Yeah. In the late 40s, she was a nun from the time she was a teenager, Albanian girl, <laughs> sent to India. She's in a, a convent in India, which was cloistered. I mean, all the, the nuns' orders back then were cloistered. So they're, they're off on, a, on their way to a prayer retreat and, and then on a train. She's in the train station. Here's a beggar crying out, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And it, it takes hold of her, but she goes on, comes back, arranges to have an appointment with the, the priest or whoever oversees the convents. It says, she tells him, I need to leave the convent, but I, I don't want to leave the order. He said, that's impossible. It's a, if you, you can't leave the convent and stay in the, it's a cloistered order. And so she's, but I have to, you don't understand. I have to leave him and say, okay, okay. Why don't you think it over? Come back in a year and we'll talk. Okay. So take a sabbatical and think it <laughs> over and then come back. So she goes back and finally she says, don't you understand? God has spoken to me. And he said, oh, God talks to you. What did he say? And she answered, he said, I'm thirsty. So Mother Teresa became, you know, Mother Teresa, and she set out from the convent with only this kind of knapsack thing that she could carry with her. Had didn't know where she was going. <laughs> Talk about faith. Had no means. And of course she struggled. And you know, her first mission, her first mission was to hold hold in her arms people lying in the street who were dying and hold them while they died. Okay. Then she when she had some means, she she had, you know, created places where they had a bed to die in. But um, from a standpoint of reason, that's there's nothing practical about that. What good does that do? To hold them. Okay, I can see you you give them a proper burial. Okay, but you hold them? You hold them like a like a mother holding her child? Um, but that's that's faith. That's knowing what there is to love and and why it matters. Uh, and Tolstoy came to realize that uh, she like like the in, in like in Anna Karenina, Karenina, his wife, the peasant. They weren't afraid of the dying man who was disgusting, right? They held him like Mother Teresa holding the dying who are disgusting right? in, in their physical makeup. Uh, that's, that's where faith leads. Faith leads to that embrace for the sake of a God who is thirsty and, and whom we can serve only in the embrace of another, only by feeding the hungry. Um, when Tolstoy did his translation of the gospel, yeah, he uh, here you see his reason there. He, he kind of leaves out uh, 
pretty much the miracles that defy <laughs> reason. It's almost Jeffersonian of him. I'm going to take all this supernatural stuff out. We're going to leave in the juice. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I also translated his his version of the Gospels. Oh, he also, I, he doesn't, he, mo- I don't know if he mocks, but he says his resurrection makes no sense. Like we can't possibly. <laughs> so, uh, okay, maybe there's a tradition for him like jettisoning the really supernatural stuff. Is that rattle him? Well, he understands the miracles allegorically, you might say. Okay, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He's, he thinks they should be read allegorically okay. and not as some historical event. He wrote a novel called Resurrection, his third major novel, which is the resurrection of the, of the, of the, the, the living soul of a, of a character, of a man. He returns to life after having lived a, a living death, you know, kind of like Ivan Illich. So... He's, but he does take very seriously the 25th chapter of Matthew, where Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You know, it's, That's how you serve God. Not by preaching or going to catechism or, or taking communion. Uh, and the, but as you know from the confession, he, he the peasants did all that, and he respected it. Right. He respected it because he understood that it helps them to to move into a deeper and more profound relationship. If that helps them do it, okay. So Tolstoy was not judgmental in that regard, except toward the intelligentsia. Yeah, he's and- super judgmental about them. <laughs> And and the uh, theologians, right? The church officials, but he, you know, also there was another passage in the Gospels that he sort of liked, which says, "Beware of those who like to walk in long robes." <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, he turns the gospel against the church, basically. And uh, after eighteen eighty, well, the confession was was censored in Russia. It was published in Geneva in 1881. And, and, and most of what Tolstoy wrote was forbidden in Russia. And most of it was published either in Switzerland or in England. I mean, in I'm, Russia. I'm not surprised. I mean, the conf- it just deals so closely with, with uh, issues that could touch on state and the main church that I could absolutely see that it would be forbidden. Oh, yeah, the church and the church and the state are, are one. And, right. And sorry. <laughs> I mean, the, the czar is the head of the church. And, you know, Papira Notsev, the head of the Holy Synod, wanted to put Tolstoy in prison. But the czar said, I, I will not add the gem of martyrdom to his crown of glory. Uh, and Tolstoy himself once said, the only respectable residence for a Russian today is prison. <laughs> and I, th- I kind of think he might have wanted to be sent to prison. He's <laughs> <laughs> kind of hoping he would be made an example of, that that would be part of his journey. Well, otherwise he might think, I'm not, I'm not doing it right if I'm not in jail. 
So, yeah, I mean, and you can see why. His, his thinking would be very threatening to dogmatic theology, you know. Okay, my closing question is about Tolstoy today. Um, I think Tolstoy, if I, I've done this now because I've gone looking, like what's what's around extant at used bookstores and in the main bookstore? So, you know, if you go to a bookstore, there are two books that are at the bookstore by Tolstoy. One is War and Peace, <laughs> and the other one is Anna Karenina. And yeah. That's a, there might be a penguin version of like a collection of short stories, but almost never the later ones. So earlier ones, but like yeah. man and master, master and man, father Sergius, right. Right. The, the later stuff, the kind of the stuff that touches on the religious stuff, not that interesting. Do you think as you think back to how profound you found these Russian writers? I just think it's interesting right now, the plots and the stories are what seem to interest modern readers and not yeah. whatever the deeper delving they did. What do you think about that? Well, the modern the modern readers uh, live in a state of flight. Oh. Uh, they run from one diversion to another. They want to be enter. They want to be entertained. Yeah. And Tolstoy is entertaining, but look how look how Anna Karenina is dealt with. It's the story of a woman who has a love affair. But that's all. That's that's the least important part of it. <laughs> it does have embedded in that the tale of of what matters and someone seeking what matters, and and to understand the the violation of the marriage is in the the context of a of a, of a relationship to what is holy and so on. So, and if you look at the film versions of Anna Karenina, it's all about the love affair. Yes, of course. Right. Uh, so. But it, it, to th to actually think to engage the question is to be undermined. Um, Martin Buber once said, "If if we if we seek to know God, we have to forget everything we ever thought we knew about God." Well, that sounds hard. That doesn't sound like fun at all. <laughs> it's it's something that we take up in fear and trembling. Yeah, it is. It is hard. It's scary. Uh, it's um, who wants to go down Tolstoy's path of this collision with nothingness, this, this struggle with despair, wrestling with the angel of death, seeking, madly seeking possibility, meaning, what matters, coming, having a dream that's 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 at best ambiguous, <laughs> uh, and then having to proceed. With the, with with the ground under your feet constantly shifting, it's uh, a, a person of faith has to become a good dancer <laughs> to keep his footing on the on the shifting ground or her footing. So that's we don't want that. We 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 have never wanted that. When God asks Adam, the first question put to the first human, "Where are you?" He hid. Yeah. <laughs> right, and we do. That's our default position: is to hide. He hid. He, he got his video games out or something. <laughs> but there's there's a commentary that says he hid inside the tree of knowledge. Mm. That's where we go to hide. Our 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 knowledge, our learning, becomes a diversion. 
and not just some cheap entertainment. In fact, it's even more insidious because we think, oh, now I'm very sophisticated. I'm reading Milton's Paradise Lost, and look at me, I'm cool. <laughs> Except, and I've complained about this to my fellow professors, I, I say to them, you read Cervantes, Dostoevsky, Milton, Tolstoy, Dante, you take up all of these texts, very sophisticated, but the last thing that concerns you is the first thing that concerned them. God, humanity, good, evil, meaning, truth, redemption. That the, the things that led their hand to tremble as they penned their works, their texts. And here, the, here we are, the scholar, and I, I'm speaking, this is part of my confession. <laughs> <laughs> As a scholar, professor, and we sit in our armchairs and, and hold forth and pontic pontificate about these texts as if we knew anything about it, uh, keeping our distance from what those authors are most concerned about, what they were desperately seeking. Uh and that's that's been that's always that's the human condition. Is sleep, sleep. Let's sleep, sleep. It's like the when Jesus took his two best friends into Gethsemane, in his most horrific hour, they fell asleep on him. And that's what we do. We sleep through the passion of the Holy One. I would say maybe the one thing that jumps out the most at me, and I probably will never forget it now that I've read it, <clears throat> but is Tolstoy's willingness again, as you said, a confession. He's not just confessing everybody else's sins. I've noticed all these terrible things happening in the world. Yeah. He is constantly talking about how he is, what he is feeling, how he is failing. And his dream, again, it is so personal. He is describing to you the emotional, the terrible fear he has hanging over the abyss. And the incredible feelings he has as he discovers this one chord that holds him, like this sense of relief, immense relief. It's so personal and real that I don't, we're all hypocritical. And that's why I like reading those letters at the end. Even at the end, he's still yeah. fallible. He's tired of people and he doesn't want to do this and blah, blah. He's just vulnerable the whole way through. He'll go ahead and tell you I did this bad thing. I do this bad thing. I, it's very refreshing. Oh, Tolstoy had this attitude of confession up, up till his death. Okay. And this self-criticism. If there's a problem in the world, it starts with me, right? He was, and you know, when, when he said, his, at the end of his life, he fled from his home. He died in a train station on his way to the South. On his desk was found a, a copy of the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky's novel, open to the, the, the exhortations of Father Zasima. Uh, where, you, where you read, each is responsible for all and I more than all the others. And his, his Tolstoy's dying words were the truth. I love it so much. So the truth is not an abstraction. The truth is lies in the flesh and blood human being who seeks my embrace, who, who cries out my name, like God cries out 
to Adam, where are you? Uh, it's through that human being that God puts us to us the questions that he put to Cain, where's your brother and what have you done? That's the question of faith. Where's your brother and what have you done? People for, people for whom uh, Brasheet is not their favorite book, like I think all the goods, I like the other books just fine. But that first book, again, maybe like the confession, concisely so quickly through those oh. patriarchs, holy moly, the stories and the issues that get pounded into those short little verses and chapters. It's insurpassable. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I sometimes I'll tell my students, the only thing you need to read are the first four chapters of Genesis. <laughs> and the rest is commentary. <laughs>